Well, good morning. I welcome you back to your seats. Grab your Bibles. Make your way to that ever-intriguing book, The Prophecy of the End of the World and the Coming of the Lord, Revelation, and we find ourselves in chapter 16. We'll make your way this morning there. And I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who's with us in our hearts that you sent to help us to understand these truths which are understood only and discerned spiritually. So help us. Jesus, you said, apart from you, we can do nothing. And, it, and this is a good example. Lord, we, we can't understand or make sense of your heaven-sent word without your Holy Spirit. So please help us so that we can put into practice the applications and the truths that we see so that we can be a blessing to you and a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I really love it when current events help me to find a fitting application for my Sunday morning sermon. And Friday was such a day. The headlines read, like a scene from Armageddon. I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> my work is done for the introduction. Now, just an amazing thing. While the world was waiting and watching for asteroid number 2012 DA14, which really passed, quote, dangerously close to the Earth, 17,000 miles, it skimmed us by... Our satellites fly at 24,000 miles out, so that it came in closer than some of our satellites. But while we were all looking for this big asteroid, apparently a smaller one <laughs> slipped in unnoticed and made a direct hit there in Russia. I have a 30-second video of it. It's all over the Internet. I'm sure you've already seen it, but how many of you have not seen a video clip? Well, welcome. <laughs> Here we go, 30 seconds. And let me just preface it. Well, just watch. Here it goes. Now, the reason that it's so clearly seen by so many different uh, cameras set up in so many different Russian vehicles is because in Russia, the police are so corrupt that many drivers have to have a video going all the time in their dashes. And that's why from every angle you can see it, uh, because from almost every car has one going and right across the sky streaked a smaller asteroid. An asteroid is any hunk of rock that's hurtling through space, no matter the size, and it's called a meteor only when it enters our atmosphere. So the asteroid, the smaller asteroid, was the size of a school bus, the one that did the damage. By the sonic boom alone, it caused 1,100 people to be injured 
by the shattering glass of the windows being blown out of places. A hundred people were hospitalized. And uh, it was the, it had the power of 20 atomic bombs and it was traveling at 40,000 miles per hour. Now get a picture of this. That's 11 miles a second. That's fast. That's faster than my wife drives. <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> now, now, here's what should be a little disconcerting. Here's what scientists say. Oh, that was nothing. Really? Oh, that was nothing. What, what they're saying, and I have the quote, the one that missed us by 14 minutes, all, all that it missed us by was 14 minutes, was not the size of a school bus. It was the size of a football stadium. And so scientists say, if that would have entered the atmosphere, there would have been a large problem, like an entire city like London being completely wiped out. Now, as the headline goes, like a scene from Armageddon, the Lord said such kinds of disasters like these are called birth pangs for the end. It's, it's letting the world know, hey, something's coming. And since there's Bible prophecy about these kinds of things, that we would connect the dots and that we would be prepared. That is what God wants us to be prepared. The only way you be, be prepared is to have the Holy Spirit in your heart because you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. And then, of course, walking the walk. But uh, the preparation that counts is not being on your best behavior. It's, it's being yielded to the Holy Spirit and having his uh, presence in your heart and life. Now, to Revelation. We've already seen that this kind of asteroid strike is, is, is pretty much a destined event for our planet. Let me read to you Revelation 8 and verse 9. The second angel, we've already passed the trumpet judgments, but the tr second trumpet judgment, uh, John says, I saw something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was th being thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, so, you know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and soars like an asteroid, you know what? <laughs> it's probably an asteroid. It sounds exactly like it. And now, you know, it doesn't seem so far-fetched to be thinking something like that could happen. It's just really amazing. Now, all we're trying to do is not to be an alarmist, but a realist. The Lord gave us 22 chapters of something he calls prophecy. And he said of that one book and the only book to ever have a blessing prescribed over those who read it. He says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And so we're not being alarmist saying, hey, the world's going to come to an end. We're just being realists and saying, hey, the world is going to come to an end. <laughs> because why? Because the Bible says so. You don't have Jesus appearing 
We don't have thy kingdom come without the dismantling and the destruction of a fallen world that needs to be judged and rightly so. So this morning, we're going to do just that. Take the words of the prophecy of Revelation to heart. And look at this, this devastating realities that really culminate with where we are in the book, the last seven bowls that end everything. They're the worst, they're the most intense, so fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen, for chapter 16. I'll tell you what, uh, there are some really uh, bone-chilling descriptions of what waits, uh, what's, what waits in store for a Christ-rejecting World, And they're the last of the 21 judgments. And at the end of that, a little talk next chapter about uh, the fall of Babylon, which is the world system. And uh, we're going to talk about that in 17 and 18. But pretty much by this chapter's end, the judgment is over. Then we get a little more description of it. And then we see his face. And then it says, Alleluia. And then I know this church will be standing up and singing Alleluia as well, because it's been a long and arduous journey uh, through these chapters. Intriguing. Love this book. You know why we're blessed? He says, blessed if you even read it and study it. What does it do? It, it puts you in right perspective. Suddenly, the earth and everything going on here isn't so important as it seems to be. Suddenly, if the earth is going to be destroyed in such a way, that how should I live? How should I be living? My priorities, fear of the Lord, trusting in God, seeing my desperate need for him, helping me with evangelism. If this is all going to happen, what about my buddy who doesn't know the Lord? You see, so that's the kind of blessing in store for those who not only read the prophecy, but take it to heart, to take it to heart. And that's what we're trying to do. Now, as we approach the last seven bowls, we're already at the end of the Great Tribulation. I thought it would be helpful to just look at a timeline. And I try to make it as less confusing as possible, all right? So here, maybe you can even dim the lights if you need to, but in Daniel chapter 9, there's the mother of all prophecies to understand the end of the world. It is called the 70 weeks prophecy. Now, a lot of Christians have heard about it, but haven't really studied it because it can, get, it can become very tedious. But I'm just going to put this outline up and I'm going to walk through it really as simply as I know how. And for us to get an understanding, Daniel of... Uh, Daniel and the lion's fame. This is the Daniel. Daniel gets a message from the Lord that says, Daniel, I'm going to lay out how it all, my whole plan of redemption to the end. And it, and it involves the Messiah and Israel. And in 490 years, you get the whole picture. Now he says, six, this is Daniel chapter 9. He says, 69 of those 70 weeks, weeks in Hebrew is something called a heptad. It means units of seven. So you can say a week or you can say sevens. So it's the prophecy called 70 weeks is actually 70 sevens, 
which means 490 years are involved in this prophecy. All right? You with me? So he's saying from the point of, and he gives him a starting point, and then he says 69 of those weeks will be fulfilled when Messiah appears and is cut off, but he will make atonement for sins. Now, the starting point is very clear in history, and it says in Daniel what that starting counterpoint would be. It's, it's the proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem. And from that point, somewhere around the middle 400s, um, Artaxerxes says, gives permission to rebuild Jerusalem. Time starts now. 69 weeks or 483 years later, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Exactly. And so in five days from there, the king comes in and he does his work to atone for the sins of the world. And then, as Daniel said, after he does that, he's cut off. Bingo. 69 weeks gone, 483 years, check. Where's the 70th week? Well, it involves Israel. Well, what's up with Israel after the cross? Not much. The world's focus then is the world. The gospel goes out to all the world. And, and scholars say that last seven years is jettisoned, it's, it's suspended at some time in the future because God's main focus after the cross, he gives the Holy Spirit, it's the church age. And all the Gentiles, all that means is nations, non-Jewish nations. It's the, the age of the Gentiles is when the gospel goes to all the world. The clock isn't ticking. When in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, in other words, when the last person gets saved and is added to the church, God knows then the church is taken away. Israel remains. And now the clock can start ticking. There's seven years left because after all, it makes perfect sense. The great tribulation is not the problem of the church. It's called Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Jacob's trouble. Jacob is just another word for Israel. They both go back and forth. Jacob, Israel, God of Jacob, God of Israel, same thing. And so because it's Israel's problem, the clock starts now with Israel because Israel's the main focus of the tribulation. It's their problem. It starts there. The Antichrist goes there. He sets up everything there. The mark of the beast is coming out of the temple in Jerusalem. Where's Armageddon? Israel. It's Israel, Israel, Israel. That's why the last seven years focus around Israel and not the church. The church is never mentioned from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation 19. You do not find the word church through the whole tribulation. You do find it 18 times in Revelation before chapter 6. And then never again through the whole tribulation. It just sort of vanishes. And that brings me to the rapture. All right. There it is. I was, I was highlighting my shirt button there for a second. The rapture. Now, 
The rapture comes from the word, from Latin, rapturo. And we've talked a lot about this from the word, the verb, to be caught up. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17 says, We who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up to meet him in the air. And then presumably he, he brings the whole entourage in to the fullness of the heavens and to heaven itself. Now, the problem, here's the problem. There's an unknown hour with the Lord's coming and a known hour. All right, let me show you this. In the unknown hour, the Lord says in Matthew 24, no man knows the hour. In the known day when Christ returns, there are four or five references that it comes 1260 days after the Antichrist proclaims himself God in the temple and breaks the peace treaty. Four different places it says 1,000 260 days from the time he sets himself up in the temple, breaks the treaty, count 1260, you're going to see Christ. Four different times. Now, which is it? We can't have Jesus saying, nobody knows the hour, and then we have in four different places, count them, 1260. So this is why we have the second coming, and we have the first coming as a thief in the night where he comes and he takes his church out of harm's way. The second problem, why we need two things in between is the seven years, is because Jesus says at the unknown hour, he says, nobody will suspect a thing. People will be inviting people to weddings. They'll be going out for dinner. They'll be going to work. They'll be, there's no, no sign as in the day of Noah, up until Noah went into the ark, everybody thought, it's cool, peace and safety, nothing's going on, you know, we've got no problems, but no one's suspecting a thing. Oh, impossible over here. The angels have already been flying in the sky, proclaiming the gospel and saying, watch out, here he comes. Okay, so I think they're suspecting. They're, they're also suspecting that mountains are falling into the heart of the seas. Uh, islands are being covered over. A third of the world perishing. A fourth of the world perishing. Global collapse. At the end, you don't even recognize the earth. So at the end, when the, the world is like staggering and reeling back and forth like a drunken man ready to collapse... I don't think somebody's going to say, hey, you going to the wedding on Friday? I don't. They're suspecting. They're knowing. So there's a problem. You can't have it both ways. And so that's why you have an unknown hour where, by the way, 1 Thessalonians 4 says we go up. It doesn't say he comes down. It says we just go up with him. In the known hour, he comes down with us to Mount Olives. So you can't have his people going up with him with no dissension and also having the Lord return with his people at the same time. It, it doesn't work. That's why you have an unknown hour when the Lord comes for his people, removes them. Now the time clock starts ticking for Israel because it's Israel's time of trouble. And at the end of that, Israel is preserved. And then he appears. And so back to the list of chronology, and then we dive into the chapter. And with this, I conclude. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a joke, because I looked at the clock. It was like, yikes. 
No, the other one, the long list. So here, here's how it goes. The cross, the church age, the Lord comes for his people, the great tribulations where we're at, we're right at the end of that. The Lord comes with his people. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, he appears with us. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, he appears with his saints, his people. The Lord reigns a thousand years, then the eternal state. And then, you know what? Phase one of eternity, done. And then we, we're awaiting phase two. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Amen? Yeah. All right. Thank you for all the slides. You can turn the lights on, and, and we're going to take a look at the, the most intense chapter in the Bible. So here we go at Revelation 16. Just for context, right we left off with chapter 15, which kind of gave you a flavor of what's to come. And really chapter 15 saying this, the Cliff Notes version, now it's time for a morally pure God who is good and just to exercise justice against those who resist him and refuse the gospel that he offers to everyone in love. And so that's the context for seeing how the Lord has to bring to a close the creation that he created and said, boy, this is good. Now he has to uncreate because the world has fallen. Verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter, then we'll walk through the seven judgments real quick. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple. God's in there alone, as it were. We saw that last chapter. His voice saying to the seven angels holding those seven bowls, go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people, notice, who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned to blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea dried, died. Uh, The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you've so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as They deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they repented. Oh, no, sorry. And they cursed the name of God, who had control over their these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and then repented. No, I'm sorry. And then cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, 
and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. You are noticing that this is a global problem. This isn't an incident in one little country. This is global. The kings of the whole world gather for battle on the great day of the Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake, keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. There's Armageddon, the first and only time it appears in the Bible. It goes by other names, but Armageddon is here. The seventh angel, the last angel, the last bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great is kind of code for something we're going to be talking about next chapter. God remembered Babylon and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of the hail because that plague was so terrible. Well, welcome, any first-time visitors. <laughs> you know what? I didn't plan this. Uh, we've been working on this a long time, so you're the one to blame. I, I, I mean, you picked today to come and visit. Uh, but you know what? Here's the reaction I'm getting uh, fr from Christians who are believers who've been longing to look into this book and, and get some teaching on it and to be encouraged that the Lord is, means what he's saying here. And so uh, first off, we see in context, this chapter really is payday. It's time. The, the, the foundations of God's throne are justice and righteousness. It's a just universe. It may not look like it at the moment, but one day it will be. And that's kind of the answer to understanding Revelation 16 and the tribulation is that sin has to be paid for. I mean, there are two ways to do that, his way or the wrath of God. Somebody's got to pay. And so we're taking a look at that now. So we see God gives the order. It's time to destroy the world, really, so that he can come and establish the good. Now, um, it's important to know from the beginning when you read such words that this is a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. God, as it were, took the contents, listen, of those seven bowls of full strength wrath 
and dumped them on his only begotten son. God took his meanest lightning bolt of all and put it through the heart of Jesus so that no man would ever have to bear the wrath of God because he came into this world as a sin bearer. He created hell for the devil and his angels, not for man. But men want to follow the devil and his angels, and you always get to where the person's destination of whom you're following. You see, but it's not God's heart. I mean, the cup that Jesus drank of the every vile sin ever committed in the garden, it was kind of his metaphor saying, I'm going to drink this cup of every last sin down to its dregs. And the mere thought of what that would do to God the Son burst the capillaries in our Lord's brow and blood dripping before anybody even laid a hand on him. So please know that as Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 says, as surely as I live, says, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, rather that they would turn from their ways and live. And then it says, turn, 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 that you might live and enjoy God's blessing. So that you really have to come into an understanding that God's not up there throwing a fit, an arbitrary little fit. He's lost his patience with the little grasshoppers down there and he's just going to flamethrow the whole place. <laughs> he already flamethrowed his own son. It ple- Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him for you and for me and for them, for the beast worshipers. Uh, we got invited out Friday night for dinner with some friends. Enjoyed it very much and then the bill came. You know, the bill always does come, you know. <laughs> I'd like to pay before, actually, when I'm really hungry, and it's easier to pay when you're really hungry. But at the end, you know, there it is. And then the two guys were fighting over it. The question never is, is the debt incurred going to be paid? The question always is, who is going to pay the debt incurred. You have a debt before God. You have two choices. It's not, is it going to be paid? Oh, it is going to be paid. The question is, who will pay it? The sin bearer or you? So now we have seen the cross. We see the cost when he pays. The cross is just simply saying this to you, man. Let me pick this up. Honestly, trust me. Let me pick it up. And the way you do that is repent on your sins. Come to me and trust me. Walk with me. You can't do a thing. You're morally depraved. Let No offense. <laughs> but you are, and so am I. That's why we need the cross. If we could do it, we wouldn't need a cross. Amen? All right, I've got to dive into these plagues. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, First of all, you got to know this. They're very similar to the plagues of Egypt. Plague 6, Plague 1, and Plague 9. The sores, the blood, the darkness. Why? Because in the Exodus, God wasn't having just a fit of a rage. He had orderly wrath that spoke. 
to say, Pharaoh is nothing. I'm more powerful than Pharaoh. And all the gods you Egyptians worship, I'm more powerful than them. And same is true in the end. He's going to say, all you beast worshipers, please. I'm way more powerful than your antichrist. Dear leader has nothing on me. And that is really the orchestrated purposeful meaning behind the plagues is to out the weakness of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the one who powers them, and the gods that that world go after. That's what he's after to say, saying he's exposing them. So uh, again, poetic justice and some real spiritual significance in these plagues as we look at them. Number one, for sure. The painful sores. Um, and notice they only follow or, or come upon those who worship the beast and took the mark of 666, some connection there on the right hand or the forehead. You take the mark, you get the sores. For me, this is God's wonderful message of love to the world who's resisted. Anyone who's resisted can make now a connection. These painful, and in the Greek, it's very nasty, oozing, festering, foul, leper-like sores. So those who are holding off and wondering, they can connect the dots and say, hey, if you take the mark, that's going to happen to you. So the second thing that's really important there is what the Lord is doing. The Old Testament, the sore, the leper, that whole thing is connected to sin. And all this is a picture of is taking the vile, gangrenous, sinful nature that's within and letting it be visibly manifested on the outside. That's all it is, is saying that they may look good on the outside, but let me show you what's on the inside. And it manifests in these gross, uh, terrible, painful Sores. And so that's really it. I was thinking the other day, what if God just said, you know what, instantly we're all going to look on the outside what the condition of our soul is on the inside. Bam. Then I thought there would be instant Bible reading. What a, what a motivation to read your Bibles. You know why? <laughs> when we read the Bible, we get cleansed. The word of God cleanses us and renews us and, and purges us of all that stupid thinking, as I like to call it, stinking thinking. And I read the Bible, man, I just feel like I just took a spiritual shower. I just feel clean. And, uh, you know, he exposes them. That's what he's doing. Vile, contagious, infectious, nasty sin on the inside now Everybody knows. Number two and three are kind of connected. Salt water, oceans, and the fresh waters go the way of the Nile of old and turn to blood. Now, real graphic language. The oceans sort of go belly up like a dead body. And however the sea is poisoned, a literal or blood-like Substance like a red tide or from an asteroid, whatever, you know. Uh, well, you'll remember the asteroid plunges into the earth and then the sea, a third of it is destroyed with blood. So a lot of commentators say that it has something to do with that. Is it real blood? Most people say probably not. The Greek gives you a little out with like. It's of like. Let me assure you this. When people look at it and are around it and smell it, everything says 
No one misses the, the hint God is trying to make, the connection. Everybody will know this is blood. 15,000 species of fish swim in our seas. Millions of schools, beautiful fish, belly up, floating in our oceans. 128 species of mammals, walruses and seals and, and, and whales and dorf, dolphins, dolphins, <laughs> endorphins. <laughs> Thousands of species of plant life, the crustaceans, the coral, and the plankton. Here's John MacArthur on this verse. Oceans, ocean waters once teeming with life become a landfill of putrid pools of stinking death, a graphic testimony to the wickedness of man and the fallen world. You know what's most disconcerting to scientists? Uh, Henry Morris, his, uh, his a record of re revelation is his commentary. He's a PhD, he's a great guy, um, great book. He says that what should dis cause us disconcertion, <laughs> what should make us worried, there we go, <laughs> most importantly, is not the fish and all of the problems that you can see. It's what you can't see. The plankton. The plankton give the, gives the planet half of its oxygen. The other half we get from green grass and green trees. Well, we already heard a third of the trees are gone and all of the grass gone, fires. We're already depleted. Then you deplete the oceans. That is why we know this is the end of the tribulation because life can't be sustained very much longer. So there's uh, a world turning, seeking water, but all they find is what appears to be blood. Uh, spiritual significance, not hard to find. You know why? Because the angel tells you. So the angel says, looks at this bloodbath. The angel's in charge of the waters. Nice to know that we have, that angels are in charge of things around the planet and maintain things. He says, and I paraphrase, this is what the world deserves. Good call here, O Lord. They spilled the blood of your beloved people. Now the blood comes back to haunt them. And then in verse 7, there's an amen. A wonderful amen. Guess who's saying the amen? Go, God. It's those who were martyred at the altar, before the altar, those who had their blood shed. Those who didn't take the mark of the beast and had their, they were beheaded. Revelation 20 says the, the way of execution if you don't worship the beast, it's to be beheaded. And so the angel says, you know what? They were thirsty after killing Christians. And now when you're thirsty, there you go. That's what you wanted. And that's what you get. In high school, I was tortured by an English teacher who wanted us to read Shakespeare <laughs> and Macbeth. And uh, I don't like reading things. I need a dictionary every other sentence to understand. And so Lady Macbeth, as I recall, put her husband up to kill the king. And once the deed was done, suddenly she started to have little psychotic episodes. And what was going on was she saw a little spot on her hand. Just a little red spot. And, and, and she kept kind of rubbing it off. What is that red spot? What is that? It's growing. 
It's growing. And everyone around her is like, we don't see any red spot. Well, it's growing. She kept washing her hands. I've got to get this off me. It's, it's growing. It's growing. It's red. It's oozing. It looks like blood. I gotta wash it off. And she'd hide her hands and she'd always be ringing. And, and then she'd come, she says, uh, quote, a little water clears us of this deed. No. And then she says, will not all of Neptune's ocean wash this blood from my hands? The answer is no. She says, no. I mean, she ends up committing suicide over this guilt. My personal belief is the Lord allows the blood thing to help people who have any semblance of conscience left to say, look, everywhere you go, there it is, there it is. Look what you have done. Repent. Have a care. Feel something. Turn to God. And you can't miss it, man. You can't miss the connection. There it is. And I wonder how many crazed evildoers of that day just, just see it, get it, and cry out and are saved, really. That's the whole point. Hebrews chapter 9. Just think if offering a lamb could put you right with God, how much more the blood of Christ, God's own son, will cleanse our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. There is a blood, there is blood, Lady Macbeth, that will get rid of that spot. And it's God's son, his blood. It can cleanse each spot, as we sang in one of the hymns. Now, the fourth plague, a bowl poured out, solar flare of some kind. Uh, it says the sun was given power to scorch people with fire, and they were seared by the intense heat. Have you ever had just like the, a sunburn from hell? I'm not talking about this, but this would be the sun. Uh, burn from hell. Honestly, uh, one time I was on a raft at Hume Lake and I fell asleep. It was so beautiful until I woke up on fire. <laughs> I was like a tomato. I was like this walking lobster. I couldn't move. I couldn't wear anything. I couldn't just don't, don't breathe near me. You know the feeling and you see somebody coming at you, you're like, step back. <laughs> don't touch me. Can you imagine can you imagine? And then you're thinking, well, there you go. Now everybody's on their knees just going, okay, uncle, I give up. No, they get madder and harder in their hearts. Shake their fists at heaven. No way. I love my sin more than this, more than the pain. I love my sin. I personally think that the Lord is just saying to these folks, I told you about eternal torment that the smoke of their torment rises day and night forever and ever. I told you that through angels. You're still going down that path. Now let me show it to you, not verbally, but give you a sample. Now, is this really what you want? Because this is less than where you're going. And yet it was temporary. They could turn. It was avoidable. It was fixable. So I think in God's mercy saying, look, you didn't get the words you, you saw the angels, you, you heard them. You didn't take them to heart. So let me just give you a sample. Here's a sample. You can still fix it. 
but it doesn't seem like they do. They understand your text says God is trying to get through to them, and rather than repent and honor him, they curse him. You know, Jesus asks a rhetorical question, and in the Gospels he says, what would a man pay to get out of hell? What would he trade? Well, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is anything, right? Well, you know what their answer is? There are certain deal breakers, God. Sexual immorality, worshiping my stuff, getting to call my own shots and my little spiritual formation of how I live my life. All of that, they're deal breakers. They don't exchange them. They say, you're asking too much. We all think, yeah, give up the sexual immorality. (laughs) It's not worth that. I remember somebody asking me when I first got saved, you know, you came out of a lot of immorality. And I said, and I said, and I believe it 33 years later, no sin, no matter how pleasurable it was. And I said this part of my testimony for years, no sin as pleasurable as it ever was, as thrilling was worth losing my soul over. It makes sense to the believers, but uh, outside of this room, they're like, well, I don't know. It's pretty fun. All right, the, the supernatural darkness, are going to move faster. Now the, the fifth plague, the fifth bulls, uh, darkness uh, like the ninth plague of Egypt. So the same idea as Egypt, this is a darkness that's just targeted with a message. So the throne of the beast, well, wherever he sets up, I don't know. People think it might be Jerusalem. It could be somewhere else. Uh, But wherever he is, the lights go out and God's sending a message. You're looking for truth. You're not going to find it with him. And, and really, that's all he's saying there. But I see the gospel in all of this. And I mean, don't you? I mean, I hear the Lord saying, come to me, all who are heavy burdened. Find relief from your conscience that's gnawing at you by the cross of Christ. Find the shade from the heat under the shadow of the Almighty. Find to quench for that thirst from the heat. In the Savior who satisfies with living water. Find light in your darkness. From the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Anybody comes to me, they'll never walk in darkness. Find the end of your misery with the gnashing of your tongue and your agony. With the comfort of God. But they refuse. Twice in this chapter it says, as if to say, can you believe it? They still don't repent. Twice in chapter 16, and two other times in the book. So four times in Revelation, it says they still don't get it. They still don't want him. They still resist. You know what, friends? That takes my sympathy card, right? I just, I, uh, it just, do you know what I'm saying? You feel me? Thank you. (laughs) Thank my friends in the front row. The sixth angel with plague number six. Now, here comes the end end because the road to Armageddon literally is being paved and cleared. Now, the national uh, resource of the Euphrates River is going to be dried up to prepare the way. Now, let me show you a picture and how you can understand. He says, the Lord is saying, I'm kind of setting a death trap. It's called Armageddon. It's called a battle in the world. Everyone calls it the Battle of Armageddon. 
Actually, it's a staging area. They, they assemble to fight the Lord, but it's not much of a battle. The Lord opens his mouth. He says a word like, seriously, and boom, they're all gone. And I'll expand on that in a bit. But check this out. I've never really realized this. He dries up the river for the kings of the east. And in the Greek, it says the kings of the rising sun. Now, you know, the economic boom, experts say, that shifted over to that nick of the woods, China and Korea, Japan, and India, that their economies are revving up. And experts and prophecy and these guys are saying, it takes a lot of money to create militaries. And that they're, they're going to have those funds and they already have the people. And some of them already have the weaponry. So the Bible predicts that nations from the east will be able to come past the 1,800-mile river there at ease. The Lord's saying, hey, you want to get in? You're not going to have to worry about, hey, oh, no, we got to cross over that bridge, that bridge, that bridge. Oh, no, no, no. No, it's almost like a highway now. Come on in. The water's down. You got to just come on in. But unfortunately, it's, it's a one-way ticket because uh, the nations of the world are going to end up in a valley called Megiddo, which is Armageddon. You can see it. We're going to stand there, Lord willing, if we're all here in May, where we are going, and we're going to look at the valley right there. But uh, that impediment, gone. He's saying, come on. You won't fight me? After all of this? After all these chapters? Come on. Come on, boys. And, and in they come. Thank you for that picture. Now, you may be asking yourself, and this is what the Bible will address now in the next verse. Why would the whole world be interested in coming to make war against a little tiny people group? Five million of them right now. A little tiny people group in, in a little piece of real estate no bigger than New Jersey. You're trying to, trying to tell me the whole, the kings of the east, 200 million strong, the Bible says are going to all come after Israel? Well, let's explain how that happens. He says, the dragon, the devil, the unholy trinity, the father, Satan himself, and the beast, dear leader, the Antichrist, the son, and the false prophet, uh, the spirit, the bishop, the imam, the guru, whatever his title's going to be, the unholy Godhead, trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, from their mouths, I saw demon spirits that just kind of look like frogs going out to all the kings of the east to stir them up with, your text, signs and wonders and deception. So what are they doing? The demon diabolical inspiration is going out and saying, Israel's the problem. It's the God of Israel. Man, the Jews again, we try to wipe them out several times during world history. Let's do this. It's the Jews. It's Israel. It's the problem. Let's go get them. Signs, wonders, and diabolical, the frogs. 
that stirs them up because there's nobody in their right mind would care less about this little tiny strip of land, right? And so he stirs up the world. It's all the Jews and their God. Let's go in and end this, right? And so frogs, what a fitting description of the unholy spirits. The dove, the Holy Spirit's symbol, beautiful, clean, white, gentle, lives in the, in the heavens. The frog, slimy, nasty, gross, disgusting, uh, repulsive, scary, ugly, useless. Let me think of some more. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, they're slippery and slimy. They're ugly, they're nasty, and they dwell where? In the muck and the mire. Perfect. We get it. All right? Let me tell you about frogs. Back in the East Coast where I'm from, they know how to do frogs right. (laughs) They're huge. They're gigantic. I've never seen a frog in California like the ones I grew up with. They're monster frogs on steroids. They're just these bullfrog kind of things. They're green, green, and they're just, they're this big. They're, they're this big. You hold them, you squeeze them, and they just ooze in every direction of frog. And so my cousin, when I was in junior high, my cousin, who was two years older than me, found out I had a phobia with frogs, which I do, and snakes, <laughs> because it's biblical. <laughs> First of all, I didn't know it at the time, but when I read that frogs and snakes were not on God's favorite list, I was so happy. (laughs) So Robbie, my cousin, takes this gigantic frog, and he's chasing me, and all I can see are the two eyes, the two eyes and the dangling frog legs. He chases me into my grandma's house, I go flying past grandma. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs for help. Nobody's helping me. And I see the vacuum cleaner and the vacuum cleaner hose, the hard part, the extension piece, right? And I just grab it on it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was out of my mind with fear and trembling. And I whacked Robbie over the head with it. And blood just spurt everywhere. Just like, now I've got the frog. And blood everywhere. I'm just like, this is a scene on Armageddon. No. <laughs> Do you know who got in trouble? Me. He had to have 10 stitches. Uh, don't chase me with frogs. Amen? How many are you with me on this? All right. How many vote for me? All right. How many vote for Robbie? <laughs> I got some prize frogs for you in the back. Honestly, yeah, don't do frogs. But I, I thought that was a great little uh, frog trail to hop along there. So mir- miraculous signs and wicked wonders. And they're like, yeah, let's go kill the Jews. It, isn't, it hasn't worked in 6,000 years, but maybe this time it'll work. So they all gather. Now, finally, the last bowl poured out into the air. So commentators say, you know, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. So there's kind of a shout out to him, your kingdom's purged, you know. So uh, the bowl goes over, the troops are already in Armageddon, in that death trap. By the way, Armageddon means place of slaughter. That should have been a cue for them. You know, don't want to go there. Um, By the way, there's only one place in the Bible where the Lord laughs, only one. 
Psalm 2. And it's in Armageddon. And they gather and they make war against Jesus. And here's what Psalm 2 says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed Messiah. And the Lord looks and has to go like... (laughs) Seriously. You guys, you're like little ants. You know, he's like a big rhinoceros. I don't know, an elephant compared to an ant. I mean, he has a chuckle over it. It's really sad. So the bowl goes over. And you hear a voice that says, it's finished. Reminding us either way on the cross, it was paid. Or now when you look at the earth and its charred remains, it's finished. He wanted A. Either way, it gets paid. So, so here's B. And it starts with a round of blinding flashes of lightning and deafening peals of thunder. Your verse says, the earthquake to end all earthquakes. Uh, Verse 19, Jerusalem is the great city, so they say uh, Zechariah chapter 14 kind of hints that it could be Jerusalem. Three parts. The cities of the nations collapse. London, Paris, Rome, Moscow, Washington, they collapse. They're gone to the ground. Islands, Japan is an island, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Puerto Rico, Honolulu, all gone, Hawaii, gone. Mountains, not one. The Appalachians, the Rockies, the Alps, the earth is dying. You're seconds away from seeing the Lord return. It's a dreadful thing. And down come 100-pound hailstones. What's up with that? Well, twice it said they're blaspheming him. Still. And so what's the prescription in God's holy word for blaspheming? Execution by stoning. The hailstones even make sense. The hailstones are saying, you know what? I don't need a tribunal. I don't need man's help. I don't need court systems. I'm going to take care of this myself right now. And he does. Which would he have rather done? I have a picture that moves me every time I see it. And I want to close the service with this thought. You know, God had one thing on his mind before the creation of the world. It says in Revelation, before the world existed, that Jesus was already as good as slain. The sacrifice was already in God's heart before he made the world, let alone one of us. All God ever wanted, all he ever wanted was this, to be a savior. He knew he was going to die for us, for the rebel who would gladly put him to death. All he ever wanted was to be a savior, not a judge, not a judge, not somebody to have to come down hard on people because he came down hard on himself, his own son, right? This is what he wants, tender, softly calling us, loving us, giving us life, saving us from sin and the very thing that is our demise, 
The thing we give our, our lives over to that we think is so cool, he says, hey, that's bad. It's going to turn around and bite you. God doesn't, uh, I mean, sin is, is prohibited not because it's bad, but because sin is bad. Oh, it's such a good little saying. Here's what I'm going to say. He's not a killjoy. That, that thing that we love is bad for us. So he says, stay away from it. Um, and enjoy life. So God has a heart of love, but you know, he does also have a side of justice. And so we praise him this morning uh, for his great love. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, as we just close out this service with such intriguing and, and really gripping things to think about we pray that the holy spirit would help us in that and can make sense of it lord and to be blessed by it you said take these words to heart and so we we plan to do so in jesus name amen